I was in Special Forces for roughly 16 years. We were privy to certain information working with intelligence. So we, we know a little bit more than the average uh, person. If the average person really knew, they'd be more prepared for what's going on in the world right now. Gang-related elements from Central America, South America, working together with Muslim extremists. I just think it's a necessary evil of today's society to be a prepper. No one's getting into my house and taking my stuff. It's absolutely horrible. I don't know how many people's ever been through it, but I'll suggest you try it. It's a constant financial strain to ensure that we have enough resources for our family survival. The government tries to take over, then ammunition, our arms are all going to be history. Once we start talking about decomposing bodies in a trash tube, that's it for me. I'm done. If Russia wants to come in and invade us, good luck to them. We have prepared in every aspect. We won't lose. We're going to win as Americans, not Americans. I think he wants to get into prepping because he just wants to be prepared for the end of the world. I would rather be hanging out with my boyfriend. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 32 of 42 Minutes of Reality. I'm your host, Mike, and I'm here with my co-host, JS. Hello, everyone. Ringing in the new year with some good old doomsday prepping. Coming to you today from my underground bunker on an undisclosed location on the <laughs> East Coast. Yeah. I have to say, though, I hope you enjoyed your holiday gift. I upgraded the show's Hulu account to commercial free. Oh, wow. Although you probably missed out on some opportunities to invest in gold bullion, so I apologize for that. Yeah, I wonder what the ads would have been for this one, but thank you. I did notice and was wondering why I was getting no ads, so yes, thank you. Yeah, I didn't mind watching the ads when we were doing the show. In fact, they were somewhat interesting in terms of like mm -hmm. sussing out the demographics. But when mm -hmm. it came time to edit the intro clips and having to pause for ads every time I wanted to go to a different section of the show, I finally decided I was just going to spend <laughs> the extra three ninety nine so I could save myself some time. That's probably worth it. So smart move there. <laughs> so you're prepping for the future here for our, our eventual apocalypse. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so we watched the Nat Geo show Doomsday Preppers. And as noted before, it was on Hulu. And we watched season three, which originally came out in 2014. And I watched all nine episodes and js you watched the first four episode nine and then part of episode five yep and i did not watch six seven or eight and not for want of enjoying the show for what it is but uh -huh. just time constraints on my end sure sure okay well i picked this one so i figure i'll get us started off with the concept and the structure which i think are kind of self-explanatory sure. from the show's title <laughs> It yeah. is following a couple families per episode. They, at least in this season, apparently it might have been different in some other seasons, which we'll talk about later on. But with this season, they're basically all middle-aged white guys who mm -hmm. live in like suburban or rural areas. And they are, mm -hmm. as the show's title implies, prepping for doomsday. And there's different scenarios, which we'll cover when we do episode highlights or whatnot. But it's stuff like, you know, mega natural disasters or the government turning into a tyranny or whatever. And so... Democide. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so... It, <laughs> 
follows these families as they are working on building their shelters, stockpiling food, oftentimes shooting their guns because they're preparing to fight marauders who are going to try to loot their property. Mm Mm-hmm. And also just focuses not only on the prepping itself, but also these male head of households, their relationships with some of their family members and how on board said family members are with the larger project of prepping for Doomsday. There's usually, at least in the ones that we watched, there have been two per episode, two different people, and they're Basically from all over the country. We had Alaska, Oregon, mm-hmm. but a lot of them tend to be from the South, which I guess would not become as much of a surprise. A lot of yeah. like Texas, yeah. Tennessee, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. and yeah, that's pretty much the show. Is there anything else about the concept or structure you think I missed that you want to add in there, JS? Sure, sure. I think you really get the broad structure of it right. I'll add for the listeners who have not seen this, the shows all follow a pretty, I don't want to say regimented, but pretty regular structure in terms of the narrative they outlay, right? They give us a little introduction in terms of uh-huh. usually, you know, the men, because they're sort of like the protagonist leading each show. And, you know, you cut back, it shows us a few minutes of one family and then cuts back to the other family in a few minutes of them. And so we, we waffle back and forth between the two families throughout the 42 minutes of the episode. And it usually starts with a brief interview you know this is where i live and you know this is kind of background i have a lot of these guys have military backgrounds yeah and this is what i'm doing and it you know kind of builds up sort of the prep they all have some larger project as part of their preps that they are in the midst of that this show captures and so depending on the episode you know it's i'm building a new bug out location i'm building a new vehicle off-road vehicle to use you know in the coming road warrior apocalypse yeah i'm working with my team of survivalists on our strategy to fight back against the marauders you know there's there's some sort of like larger project they're in the midst of in terms of their prepping and so a lot of the narrative arc has to do with that and then at the end of each episode as well we get a breakdown and a review from practical preppers (laughs) which is a company that apparently provides guidance as to prepping and so the narrator kind of voice of god narrator gives us the opinion of practical preppers as to what the family did wrong or right and how they're prepping and what they can improve on and then i always find it really funny too because each episode after all this kind of doom and gloom about you know each family saying you know this is what we're prepping for Uh the narrator goes through and says like you know the u.s government keeps statistics on how likely it is a super volcano is going to hit the u.s and it's you know unlikely to happen in the next ten thousand years you know something like that about how you know extraordinarily unlikely most of these scenarios are as envisioned by the people that are espousing them yeah I'm glad you added that. I forgot about the little coda at the end. Yeah. We've had a couple of recording delays, so <laughs> it was a while since <laughs> I've watched this, so my memory's a little foggy. No sweat, no sweat. Yeah, yeah. So I think those are interesting to point out. And I'd say all the episodes, they're similar in sort of the narrative beats, I guess is yeah. I would say, in what I just described. Even though the people are, some of them speak a little differently because they're in different parts. They're all American, but they mm. speak different accents, different sure. parts of the country. Yeah. There's different sorts of things they're planning for and different ways in which they're focusing on their prepping it started to feel pretty familiar to me and i watched a lot of them i watched about half of them one day half the next and so it was pretty concentrated for me but it seemed to start to almost kind of melt together some of the narrative yeah definitely for sure yep 
Yeah. Do you want to dive into maybe some specific episodes to highlight kind of in greater detail? Yeah, yeah. I didn't take great episode by episode notes, but we can give kind Mm -hmm. of the protagonists being focused on and what their deal is. So episode one, actually, maybe I'm biased because this is the first one I watched. Mm-hmm. But other than mm-hmm. episode nine, which we'll get to, I've made JS watch it for a reason. It's the Carrie Ann Panish episode of this season. <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely good. It was really good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But other than that one, I think this one was my favorite. Maybe because it's the first one, but the people are pretty ridiculous. So the yep. first person is Chad, who's from Arizona, and mm-hmm. he is preparing for a nuclear strike and genocidal siege from the American government. No, no, not genocide. Democide. <laughs> I think he uses both interchangeably, but yeah, he also uses that phrase. But I was shocked because I think he says it like five times, and then he's yeah. talking to these little girls about it. He's got like a yes, yes. 12 or a 14 year old. He's talking to them like Democide. Table, the table. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I interjected. Go on. Yeah, so that's his thing. And so he's building, it's like a tunnel that they're going to tunnel out yeah. of when the government finally attacks so that they can get to their getaway car. Although you think if the government used a nuclear weapon on their city, that's. Uh, but you know whatever (laughs) i think that'll be a common theme (laughs) well i think the idea was he's not gonna get nude because he's not in like you know Uh, new york or dc atlanta not someplace that's likely to get nude but it's the marauders right they're gonna come after society breaks down so he's gonna defend the household until he can't and then escape through his escape yeah and then the other guy was mike he was from i think north carolina or something like that Mm -hmm. and his thing was very very unclear to me but it involved i guess central american gangs and muslim terrorists teaming up for a biological or biochemical attack and then that was somehow going to destroy society entirely so there was the biotent drill that he was doing with his son for when the biochemical attack came and then he was building like an atv that could fight off marauders who i guess would come in the aftermath it's unclear whether they're just general purpose marauders or whether these were the central american gangs and terrorists that were going to take over yeah not clear (laughs) so were there any highlights from that episode besides the guy at the dinner table talking about stemicide i particularly like that I guess, I mean, I guess I'll show my hand. I particularly actually like this show quite a bit for a lot of reasons. I mean, not only am I perplexed and amused, I actually just fly out like some of it. First guy, Chad, actually had that really cool aquaponics system uh-huh. where he was growing all this food in his greenhouse in his backyard, but also had a tank of fish, I don't know, or trout or whatever it was, that they were raising to eat. But the aquaponics system, the water, you know, went through the fish tank. Uh-huh. And the plants helped purify some of the water. And then he was growing algae which then you could use, presumably, in you know, your doomsday scenario, to burn, to make oil that could burn in a diesel engine. Diesel engines can burn almost anything you put in there. Uh-huh. And I was like, I mean, that's just cool to me. Like, even if, you know, the doomsday scenario is unlikely to happen, I just thought that was a really kind of cool feat of gardening slash engineering to have this little uh-huh. system where they were, you know, kind of raising their own food. So I thought that was pretty interesting. The other thing I should note that, you know, really struck out to me, having, like, occasionally seen shows like this, Mm -hmm. because, again, I just have a little bit of interest in this stuff, but never really religiously watched, and watching with a critical eye for the podcast. What struck out to me with this episode and seeing Uh Kira do with all of these is I'm sitting there going, man, these guys are pretty wealthy. Yeah, definitely going (laughs) to talk about that. (laughs) And we'll probably get into that later, but I just want to mention it, because it really stuck out to me with all the things these people are doing. Yeah, yeah. 
And so, you know, I think he was a programmer, if I'm remembering right, Chad, the guy in Arizona. I may not be recalling, but he did some sort of... Yeah, that seemed to be pretty common. They were like contractors or programmers. I don't remember what Chad's particular deal was, but yeah. I don't remember, but Mike, he owned an ATV park. Yes. So I don't know if that's his only source of income, but that was like some of it. And that was their a source of income plus their bug out location. Yeah. The Mexican slash Muslim <laughs> marauders come. That's where they're going to go with their armored ATVs. So, you know, I thought this episode sets up well kind of for what to expect for the rest because all these episodes, at least that I watched, did show this father, this husband really leading the show as to, you know, this is the prepping I'm doing, but getting the family involved working together to better sort of their preps for doomsday yeah although this is back in 2014 so we never could have foresaw that we were gonna build the wall and everything was gonna be solved i know he doesn't need to, need to worry <laughs> yeah right trump's gonna get the wall for us and then yeah, yeah. In good shape. <laughs> That'll solve it as we're that. recording this you know we're just awaiting the funding you know, yeah we'll be back open so. uh, this may date us but okay <laughs> listeners in the future that is what's going on yeah yeah i'm sure by the title list to this trump will have already won his wall funding his third term after term limits are repealed. For... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, so the second episode, part of my motivation for the season was the second episode. The guy, Kurt, he's in this rural compound. He's preparing for an economic collapse. And yep. he's actually from my home state of Oregon. Doesn't live in the exact location I live in, but, mm. you know, it's a couple hours drive away. <laughs> so <laughs> I was interested. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure I would not be immediately gunned down by his <laughs> gigantic arsenal of weapons. Mm. So he's preparing for an economic collapse and shows some questionable parenting skills, having his <laughs> nine-year-old girl hold up an assault rifle to engage in target practice. And then the funny thing with him, though, is he has to actually flee his compound because there's a wildfire. <laughs> and yeah. I have to say, showed by hand a little bit. If it wasn't for the fact that he had kids, I would have been rooting for the fire to consume his compound. <laughs> Oh, geez, that's a little harsh. That's a little harsh. No, it's not. <laughs> I'll chime in and say I was uncomfortable, too, with the scene with his daughter firing yeah. the... And here's why. Not because I don't think a child that age can use a firearm, because, you know, showing my hand, I grew up shooting firearms with my grandfather yeah. from probably about that age. I was probably nine or ten when I first went out. But she was clearly uncomfortable and did not want to be doing it, and that's what made me uncomfortable about it. Not her age, just the fact that she was... Clearly, well, the fact that she couldn't even hold up the fucking gun was another. Right, right. Because I mean, you know, I went out when I was nine or ten, and I was shooting a twenty-two that I could hold in my hands and sit or sit on the bench rest and and shoot. Yeah, so I mean, quite quite different there. So yeah, and again, you know, this is gonna be a recurring thing. But I was like, wow, this guy's wealthy. He's got like eighty acres, this gorgeous house. And then when the fire comes. And they're like, oh, we're going to get out. So to give you a little, listeners a little background, his project, because right, because they all have a project. Yeah. This guy's project was building like the most badass Ford Bronco, like OJ definitely yeah, would have been like a this thing. getaway vehicle, yeah. <laughs> Right, right. They put like armor on it and like a skeleton. I'm not thinking of the right word, but you know, like a skeleton of iron bars to go over it to protect it and like gun ports. I mean, crazy. Uh-huh. And he put knocks in it so they can like blast off through. And so I'm thinking, oh, okay. So he's going to use this like his new getaway vehicle. Like maybe it wasn't done. I don't remember. But no, he pulls out this huge RV. <laughs> Like, yeah. it's gorgeous and pulls it out with his truck to get away from the fire. And I'm like, okay, yeah, this guy. Yeah. Again, quite, quite well. Yeah. 
And then the other guy was from Alaska, and his name yeah. was Rodney. He was preparing for a mega tsunami. And it was funny, when I first saw it, as oh, this is like the first guy who might be somewhat rational. But then yeah. it became clear the extent to which he was prepping and how he was building a tank <laughs> to <laughs> fight off people and doing this elaborate dumping of stuff in specific places so that nobody else could find it. I'm like, okay. Because right. the thing with the prepping is, I want to make a distinction. If you live in a tornado zone or something like that, it's perfectly rational to like, you know, build a shelter and have you know, a week's worth of food on hand or whatever. But that's not the case with the disasters that these people are preparing for. They're just going way over the top. And my favorite thing, this was also a great episode, because my favorite was Rodney's daughter, Megan, who I think was the one person in the show who's a family member who was just having none of it. <laughs> and I was, <laughs> she was standing in for me, pretty much. She was just like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'd rather just be hanging out with my boyfriend right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I agree. She was definitely checked out and not so interested. And I see your point in here again. Maybe we're getting too ahead of ourselves, but I'd rather just a conversation go kind of naturally. Because sure. I think some of this is not even... My impression is some of these people's desires come from not only this goal that they want to prep, but it's yeah. like playing army for big boys. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like this guy's tank thing was... Okay, I'm going to say it was cool. And if I was a bajillionaire and had like too much money to know what to do with, maybe I'd buy one of those. Cause that'd be cool to drive around. But like there's no conceivable real life situation in which you really need that oh yeah it's just sure. a cool piece of machinery to own and again i should point out i think of the people we've talked about i think three or four of them i don't think chad in the first episode had military experience but i think everyone else did and yeah. i think almost all these people do have some sort of military experience. Yeah, it's a fairly so this guy does thing, yeah. yeah yeah this guy was a navy seal and so i'm just guessing but my guess is i think most of these guys did you know maybe a full 20 years has a military pension and these guys have gone on to you know their second career so they're pulling some sort of military pension while also doing something else i remember this guy was a uh -huh. tattoo artist and so it's like you know again this guy seems pretty wealthy because he's buying this like armored personnel carrier yeah <laughs> and like buying food and just dumping it in the ocean in these metal cylinders he makes so he can pick them up after the coming tsunami yeah and then episode three is tracy who was i think from oklahoma maybe he was prepping for a mega tornado yeah. and yep. Oh, no, he wasn't from Oklahoma. The show mentions that there was a serious tornado, and the tornado was in Oklahoma. Mm. I think Trace was in Missouri or something like that. I don't know. These all kind of blend best. together. Yeah. yeah. And so he was the one building the modified school bus, right? In order yeah. to... Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Mad Max school bus. Yeah, yeah. And he owned... It was some type of... And a metal manufacturing plant. Yeah, fabrication facility. And yep. then the other person was Dan from Florida. And yep. he was one of the few people... It seemed like his wife was also really into it and helping him prep. I can't remember mm -hmm. her name. Maybe that says something about me. But he was prepping for a mega lightning storm that was going to blow out the power grid. And so he yep. was building this... It was like this solar magnifying glass contraption, basically, that would like heat yep. water and cook food and stuff like that. Right, right. I thought of the two of them, Dan was much more interesting for two reasons. 
I thought he was at once both the most normal and the most abnormal of all the people, Mm -hmm. at least in the episodes I watched, because he was, to me, they seem like the most middle class, lower middle class of all the other people, right? He Uh lived in like a normal house with a small yard. He was doing some prepping, but his project was like, do it yourself, sort of, rather than like, I'm building a huge vehicle that I'm going to like run down marauders in, or like, you know, on my huge compound, I'm building another bug out location. It was like, they were worried about finances in terms of how they're going to finance his build. So they went to a used electronics place to buy a TV because they could get like the lens they needed to make the magnifying glass out of the TV. So they bought like a used TV while other people are like modifying. Tracy had five of his employees who work at his plant cut up this bus and make it into this Mad Max bus, which is like admittedly, again, cool because it has like this wood fired engine so that you could run it on scrap wood rather than gasoline that he built and designed and put the back of the bus. Like, yeah, that's really cool. But I mean, how much does that whole project cost? I mean, it's got to be like tens of thousands of dollars that you're just like making this kind of cool vehicle to drive around in. Yeah. But I also thought Dan was a little crazy. (laughs) Just like a little, you know, I don't know, just the the impression I was getting just through the television set that he was a little off kilter. More so even. Yeah, that one sort. (laughs) Well, but I mean, he's the one who's like burning himself and punching holes through chicken with this laser he's built with the Uh magnifying glass. Like, you know, he was at once both, like I said, most normal, but also the most unhinged, kind of just like mad scientist wacky. Do you know what I mean? Sure. You know, out of his garage, kind of, I don't know. I thought he was one of the more interesting of the subjects of the show. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you touched on it with the class distinction. The other thing yeah. we forgot to mention is like Chad, who's building his tunnel. He actually hires like a group of contract construction workers to come out and, right. you know, dig his thing for him. And that's pretty right. common that there's a lot of these contractors. Some of them seem to be like preppers themselves or specialize in mm-hmm. helping the prepper community, aka right. scamming them for bucks. But <laughs> why? Well, hey, why is it a scam? If that's what they want, and they want to pay for it. No scam involved. Yeah, it's a scam. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the thing that stuck out to me about Dan, other than the class thing, and I'm also showing my hand here. He also seemed like there was one other guy or a couple others from the episode you didn't watch. He was the only one who didn't seem like a gigantic hassle. <laughs> like crazy, yeah. sure, but. <laughs> He was like the only one who wasn't obsessed with, you know, they always say, oh, I don't want to have to do this. Yeah, like gleefully shooting at things and fantasizing about murdering tons of people. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, he had no guns. Yeah. That was one of the things that came up. He said, yeah, this is a house where they don't have any guns. Yeah. Which was probably one of the few. I think pretty much every other one did. Yeah, yeah. And then episode number four was Rob from outside of Dallas. And his thing was also very unclear. It seems like the... (laughs) I'm probably going to get myself a drill for saying this. It seems like the ex-military people had the most unclear scenarios. (laughs) Maybe something happened during the war or something. (laughs) Went a little stir-crazy. But his thing was martial law and civil unrest. It was very unclear to me whether he was preparing for rioters or whether he was preparing for the government to clamp down on rioters. His scenario was <laughs> unclear to me. He yep. just seemed to be really enthusiastic about putting in traps to kill people and blow people up. <laughs> he was probably yeah. one of the most unsympathetic of the protagonists of a group of people I found very unsympathetic. <laughs> well, yeah, it was weird because, like, I mean, booby-trapping your property is not a good idea. Yeah. To anyone out there who's listening to this podcast... <laughs> <laughs> this is not legal advice, but booby-trapping your property, not a good idea. So 
there's one strike against this guy. But then the strange thing was, this is the one guy that they portrayed, like, very sympathetically, but, like, weirdly so, where he gets really, during the filming, they get yeah, a call like that there's, like, a terrible, yeah, tornado coming through. And so his wife has to go get his daughter at school because they're laying all the kids out because of the tornado. So his wife runs out, and then he's waiting at home, and he's calling them, but they're not calling back, and they're supposed to be driving back. And he's like, you know, here's this huge guy who could beat the crap out of me. He's this huge guy, ex-military, who's crying on screen, talking about how he's, like, so worried about them and mm -hmm. he can't always protect them. And so it was just, I mean, it appeared genuine, but it was just yeah. odd. It was just a weird scene. And I don't want to say it's just weird because, you know, oh, seeing a guy cries weird. But here's this guy who's like, I'm going to put booby traps out to F up people on my property. Yeah. But then they show him crying on screen for his family. I don't know. It just strange well you know and we'll get into this when we talk about the world here and the common themes there's this like weird dichotomy where they're really concerned about their family but fuck everybody else is basically kind of the mentality right i mean i get that to a degree sure I, mean, I got a family and i get that to a degree it was just strange that this was the only one that we saw like what appeared to be i mean it's the only one i think to see tears in yeah it was just odd that he was the one that they got that from or showed that given how he's presented in the rest of the episode. Yeah, well, I mean, he actually, you can't really plan for a tornado happening. So it could have just sure. been kind of happenstance. And then the other guy was Greg. He was preparing for an economic collapse. I think he was the one, was he the one that built the invisible tree house? Was that yeah. episode four? Yeah. Okay, yes. So he was building an invisible tree house out in the woods in a spider hole that he was going to use to kill marauders. Kill marauders. Yeah, this is a <laughs> common, <laughs> a common, common thing. Common refrain in the show. How do I kill marauders? Yeah. And was that there was anything that stuck out about him? I just, I mean, the tree house is just, I mean, there's, I don't know. I feel like, again, a lot of these guys are living out, like, boyhood fantasies. Like, oh, yeah. If I was financially comfortable enough to do so, hell yeah, I'd go out and build an invisible treehouse in the forest and, like, go fuck around my friends with it. Like, why not? <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, if, like, you got the time and the money and, like, you don't care, like, sure, why not? I don't know. It wouldn't be, like, high on my list of priorities. But this guy bought, like, I don't know how I'm going to make it up, but he bought, you know, 60 acres out in the forest, which is yeah. his bug out property that he's got to, like, defend from marauders and live in his little treehouse. And I was like, I mean, I don't know how much that is going to be true, but, like, that's a cool little treehouse. <laughs> yeah. So, and then episode five, I know you didn't see the whole thing, but nope. I know you saw a little bit of it. So the first guy is John. He's preparing for Category 5 hurricane, and his mm -hmm. big thing is he's collecting bees so that he can right. raise honey and raise his own property. Yep. And this guy was the most hilarious to me. So he talks about how he was motivated to start prepping because he almost died during Hurricane Ike. Hmm. And this is the thing that happened, especially with a lot of these natural disaster ones. Hurricane Ike went through Haiti and Florida. He had several days to evacuate his property. If he almost died during that hurricane, it's because he's a fucking moron. It's not because he didn't prep hard enough. <laughs> like, I don't get these people. If there's a natural disaster, you're going to know about it with advance. Just leave. He's one of these idiots well, that thinks he can, right, like, right. ride it out. And then, you know, you have to send someone in there to go rescue him. Yeah. And then okay. the... Yeah. The other two, they were two brothers, Brett and Shane, from a prepping family who were preparing for an economic collapse. And mm -hmm. these were the closest people. They almost came to self-awareness, but they fell just short. Because one of the things they had to do, they've been prepping since the 70s, and they're having to throw out their old food because the right. predicted economic collapse hadn't happened yet. And they were talking about how it was a financial burden to have to buy all this food and <laughs> store it up. 
And I'm like, you're so close to self-awareness, but you just can't quite take that extra step <laughs> to realize you're <laughs> wasting all your money on nothing. But their thing that they're doing is they were creating as like a sniper tower with a zip line. Once again, shooting marauders. Right, right. Yeah, and the big thing with this episode is they do like a crash test dummy and realize that the initial concept for their zipline might be a little bit flawed because (laughs) as currently constructed, it would probably kill the person who attempted to use it. Yeah. Anything that stuck out from what you watched on that episode that I didn't cover? Nah, I only watched about the first 15-20 minutes, so I don't have much to add there. Okay, and then I'll just do the quick hits six through eight since you didn't see them. Sure. So episode six was Kenny, who was preparing for a civil war, and he brags about how private citizens have better stuff than the government, which is kind of weird because the government has nuclear weapons. And he basically does some type of drill where the government is represented by five people in t-shirts. And he's building like a compound on top of his house so he can like shoot the government invaders better. And the funniest thing from that episode, he's like, yeah, this will stop about anything short of a tank. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, good thing the government doesn't have thousands of those. (laughs) And then the other guy was Kevin. He was one of the few people that actually lived in kind of like an urban place. He was right outside of D.C. He was preparing for an EMP attack. So he was building this elaborate underground post-apocalyptic shelter that was going to run after the EMP attack knocked out the grid and society collapsed. And he was also one of these people who was super rich. He owned like this factory that he was having everybody work towards building this post-apocalyptic shelter. And then episode seven was Richard, who was preparing for a nuclear strike. He had a Browning machine gun and Claymore mines. He was another one of these ex-military people. He shot up a car for no fucking reason whatsoever. All I could think to myself was, you might as well just take like $2,000 and light it on national television. But yeah, he was doing that. And then Dr. Dave was the other one. Although he's a doctor of naturopathic medicine, which should come uh, as yeah. a surprise. Yeah, let's put huge, huge finger air quotes around that doctor. Yeah, yeah. So he was making his like homemade post-apocalyptic medicine facilities with like essential oils and Chinese herbs and acupuncture and all that stuff and marijuana. He also made sure to uh, (laughs) extol Mm -hmm. the benefits of that as well. His thing was that a solar flare was going to knock out the power grid. Mm -hmm. Then episode eight, it was two people named David. One was from Colorado and one was from Tennessee. They were both preparing for the San Madrid earthquake. And David from Colorado, his big thing was he was having drones who were going to like tase looters and send out first aid kits. Although he was also one of those people who was big into alternative medicine. So I don't know how well his first aid kits would actually help in a post-apocalyptic or post-earthquake situation. And then the other Mm -hmm. guy from Tennessee, he was kind of interesting because he was also one of those people who, unlike everybody else, wasn't very rich. He was kind of like your quote-unquote poor white trash and so he was building a diy cement geodesic dome in his backyard 
Mm-hmm. And yeah, had his father help with it, sit inside the geodesic dome while he shot some tannerite to simulate an earthquake. <laughs> uh, I think a common theme behind these is most of these people are more likely to die doing their preps than they are <laughs> during the imagined apocalypse that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And then episode nine was my favorite. I'll let you take this one away, JS since I've been doing the other ones. Yeah, yeah. No, this one was pretty fantastic. And I think one was sort of more fantastic than the other. Yeah, for sure. So I'm going to leave the most fantastic for last because I think we'll talk about that more. Sure, yeah. The first one is in Texas. There's this group. This episode is odd and fantastic for many reasons. But the group, I think Joe was the name of the leader. Yes. Of this group in Texas who consists of like, I think, 20 plus people. They got families who've joined this survivalist group. They get this property that they're planning on continuing society after the collapse. And to that end, they have all these people with... Yep, yep. Sorry, I should be more clear there. And their goal is you know, they have all these people kind of with different skill sets and different things they're supposed to do. That You know, they have all this food preparation and they're going to have a planning to have a school there. Like his wife, you know, is going to teach all the kids and they collect all these books to have books to teach the kids, mm-hmm. you know, because they can't have electronics because after the cyber attack, everything will be down. So everything needs to be, you know, hard cup of books. Yeah. And then they're working on making booby traps again. Terrible idea. <laughs> and they have some interpersonal conflicts because like the booby traps aren't working and the guy who engineered it has already kind of been on the ropes with the group because yeah. he doesn't quite pull in his weight and it got really weird to me quickly because it's very clear that like joe is like the dictator here the king and like sure. he has his quote-unquote council but it just got like i mean it's a terrible show but i got this sort of the walking dead kind of vibe with it's like you know these sort of dictators come to power these little fiefdoms right mm. and i got the sense like oh my god joe would be like terrible like this little fiefdom he wants to control all these people <laughs> yeah i don't know just kind of weird and the big project the end here is they're working on a gyrocopter again giving us callbacks to the road warrior and <laughs> They're working on like finalizing it together and getting up for a flight because they want to be able to survey the property and figure out the best points of attack and defense. Again, like, you know, the whole kill the marauder thing. Yeah. And that's sort of that one. Anything you want to add to that scenario? No, I think you covered it pretty well. I think that one's kind of interesting because it's one of the few where there's actually some type of society envisioned afterwards, whereas everybody else just wants to like hunker down in their bunker and just focus on their families. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right in that that's interesting. The thing I just didn't like is it was scary imagining a society run by Joe and his, quote, council. (laughs) Yeah. Which brings us to the last, which is... I mean, outstanding in so many ways. (laughs) So it is about Mark, a firefighter, and some of his firefighter friends who live in Georgia and are preparing for the Russian invasion. Yeah, Red Dawn scenario. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, I thought was a middling movie, but apparently some people really (laughs) took to heart as like a warning, a foresight as to what's going to happen. Yeah. I just, we're going to get into this, but it boggles my mind, one, that this is, you know, this was the scenario he's envisioning. But then it was just amazing for two reasons. One, because the prep is just, let's kill the marauders, which in this case is the Russians. Yes. Because they buy like an old propane tank or oil tank. And then like, (laughs) they make it into a Trojan horse. Yeah. And then I like how he educates the viewer. He's like, the Greeks were fighting this war and they had the best soldiers, but they couldn't get in to kill the Trojans. So then they built on this horse and they got in and then the Trojans went to sleep and the Greeks killed them all. I was like, okay. I mean, that was pretty close word to word is what he narrates to the camera. And then his idea is we hide in this, the Russians come, and then me and my two firefighter buddies kill them because we need to get away from these Russians that we kill. They make homemade smoke bombs. 
out of stump removal and baking soda, which apparently <laughs> makes smoke bombs. That was news to me. And then they use that and they try them out. That's one of the other things they like kind of work to do that so they can show that they can get out. Because they made a little escape hatch and they made a yeah. little periscope and a little fake oil tank so they can creep out and kill the Russians and get back to their hideaway. But what was potentially most impressive is the fact that Mark has his friends waterboarding. <laughs> yeah and then they like gently waterboard his friends he's like more legitimately waterboarded i'll give him that it appears that he goes first and they like tie his hands behind his back and like actually waterboard him for all of like 10 seconds but actually do it and then his friends they like very gently waterboard with their hands at their sides yeah my favorite part about the waterboarding thing is like the average cia person breaks in 14 seconds i'm hoping to last twice that long i'm like okay so when the russians covered and paid and waterboard you you're gonna hold out for 20 seconds instead of 14 <laughs> <laughs> right right i liked what he said afterwards i'm not trying to one let me say i think the guy's a little crazy i would never volunteer to have anyone waterboard two i'm not surprised he broke i hear he's absolutely fucking terrible yeah waterboarded so i'm not at all trying to take away from macho his ability to prepper but what i do want to mention is that afterwards he talks about how like yeah i didn't last long but you know if this was a real scenario you know we got to have all the training i think myself buddy you just had your two friends do it for like 10 seconds and you knew that they would stop like yeah you think it's gonna be any better if it's like actual yeah Russians they just or it's like it the mexican yeah. muslims you know yeah. from episode one like <laughs> whoever's doing it, it's gonna be a hell of a lot worse than your friends in masks yeah yeah this one it was so funny to me if i would have watched this when it originally aired i would have mm-hmm. thought that like they were punking the producers or something like that because it's so ridiculous but now when i post-2016 world i have no choice but to <laughs> take whatever crazy shit people say at face value sure yeah 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 unfortunately yeah although i wonder what they're prepping for now that the russians are buddies do you think it's a chinese attack now that mark's preparing for um i don't know probably like ukrainians right <laughs> we have to worry about them like they're gonna get crimea back and then they're gonna come to the states probably and yeah. get us next <laughs> but yeah <laughs> sarcasm in case and for our listeners who can tell <laughs> but yeah that one his thing was pretty entertaining right and so now i want to segue right into sort of my issue with a lot of this is yeah i don't think really and i'm sure you feel the same way really any of these doomsday scenarios are one likely too realistic you know just i found it absolutely ridiculous yes. but my sense was i really think the producers are putting most of these people up to it you know what i mean They were definitely egging people on, but I didn't think that these people needed a lot of encouragement to be egged on, honestly. I felt like this was a heightened version of what they were, but I didn't think they were being like flat out misrepresented. And the article definitely touches on this aspect, so we'll definitely talk about it more when we bring that in. But I think these people are definitely playing it up somewhat. Like, I don't think their whole life is just doing bug out drills. I think they Mm -hmm. have like your normal suburban nine to five, but that's not the stuff they're going to be filming. So it gives a kind of incomplete picture of how these people actually live their lives. But I don't think that there was stuff that was like out and out completely staged or something like that. Sure, sure. Like, I believe these people believe these things. 
Okay, let me put it this way. I mean, clearly they're all preppers. I'm not trying to suggest that like sure. these are you know random people that they say, hey, would you pretend to be a prepper? Like these people are all legitimately preppers that are stocking food, water, firearms, whatever else it may be. To me, just all the scenarios, one appeared so in some ways ridiculous, but also so discreet from each other. You know what I mean? That I just thought it was too clean for me. I felt that was very inauthentic, which maybe is jumping ahead a little bit of ourselves as well. But I just thought it worthwhile to talk about that. I didn't because a lot of these, and I should make it clear too and for our listeners who haven't watched is oftentimes when they're not capturing action you know like the people mm-hmm. firing their firearms working on their you know marauder killing vehicle whatever they're doing there there are numerous shots where you have because again the main characters or the protagonists the, the main focus is always in the episodes we watch at least the fathers uh-huh. you have these guys sitting on a chair and the camera slowly zooms in on their face when they talk about like you know this is what I'm doing and I'm preparing for this and blah 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 and I thought those seemed quite inauthentic to me yeah. Yeah, you're talking about where they're like facing the camera with their gun. They're like, I'm prepping for a nuclear siege, blah, blah, blah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, those parts definitely seemed rehearsed. But at the same time, even though the words and the action was definitely rehearsed, I didn't get the impression that these people didn't actually believe. (laughs) It seemed more like they were rehearsing for their big moment on camera more than the producers Mm. were telling them what to say. That distinction makes sense. Fair enough, fair enough. I see what you're saying. I'm not sure I see it quite the same way. I just thought some of these seemed too outlandish or too unlikely that there was just something that, you know, producer said, well, you know, we've already hit the Muslim Mexican. We've already hit sure. tornadoes this season. We already hit economic collapse. So how about mega lightning storms? And then, you know, what's his face in Florida says, yeah, okay, I'll say that on camera. <laughs> Maybe. It's just my But impression. I don't know. It seems like there's a lot of these people around. So maybe you just cherry yeah. pick the most interesting people. Like, I bet you Okay, probably yeah. 90% of these people are probably like government dictatorship or economic collapse. So they right. take the most interesting people there and then mm-hmm. they try to kind of fill out the rest. Because if you're just a basic, not all that interesting, generic prepper, you're probably not going to end up on this show, I feel. Sure. Yeah, no, that's fair. But yeah, I figure maybe if you're ready, we could talk about the common worldview. Because I think part of what this is coming from when you're saying it seemed a little too clean or Mm. it seemed a little too discreet. Yep. I can kind of understand where you get that impression because I mm-hmm. felt like the way in which they prepared or the themes that they chose to emphasize in the narrative were basically the same with everybody, even though they were supposedly preparing for different scenarios. Mm-hmm. So I just, you know, one of the things that comes up over and over again is there's always a moment where the person looks into the camera and they're like, I need to protect my family. Protecting my family is the most important thing to me blah 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 and then in every episode there's what they call bug out jewels we've used the term over and over again we should maybe explain what that means to people who haven't seen the show bug out is basically like when the shit hits the fan Mm -hmm. you bug out you get out of there it's got a piece of prepper lingo so there's the bug out drills where you're evacuating and getting to your shelter and blah blah and then there's also a lot of the combat drills where they're having their prepper buddies come over and they're playing the marauders or they're playing the governor or whatever so that they can test their defenses for when the real thing comes and then there was also as you said a lot of techniques for living off the grid that you mentioned like hydroponic gardens solar panels were a big thing that came up over and over again yep and then there was also in terms of kind of the mentality
mentality of these people. There's this big paranoia that everyone's going to come for what's theirs, which I felt was kind of a metaphor for how they lived their life pre-apocalypse. <laughs> and there's this big desire. This was the thing that came up. I'm paraphrasing. I didn't take out any of these sure. exact phrases. But a lot of times people would say, people say I'm crazy because I'm a prepper, but I'm not crazy. America needs to wake up because when the blah, blah, blah comes, I'm going to have all my preps ready and you're not. So there's this, maybe it started off as like a small thing, but as they've gotten deeper and deeper and more committed to it, it seems like there's this mm -hmm. doubling down and this desire to, you know, when everything does come to pass that they can tell all the like haters and the naysayers that <laughs> I told you so seem to be a big motivation. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a couple things at play mm -hmm. as to that last comment. I think that you know these are taking some of the more extreme sure. of those that are preppers, those that are going to make better television, so it's going to be those that have... Yeah, yeah. You, know, you wouldn't be on the show if you weren't. Right, right. If you're not really into this. So I think that's an aspect of it, sure. which tends to be why you get these people that are sort of defending it. And I think there's this overlap between people that tend to go this far and people that are in things like conspiracy theories. You know yes. I mean? It's this sense that they believe they see a truth in the world that others don't yeah and they gain a huge part of their self-identity through that belief and so i think almost all these people even off the camera my impression is they have adopted sort of a large part of the prepper lifestyle as some of their identity and so yeah. they feel this need to defend it because let me put it this way i think i don't even know how you'd classify it as normal but like i think a quote normal amount of prepping is actually really wise i mean i live in the northeast mm. and there's been some storms i mean hell in my lifetime there was a storm that came through thankfully i just managed to miss it where i was living at the time so i didn't lose power yeah. at all but you know my folks lost power for about a week and there was people a couple towns over there was streets without power for sure. a month for six weeks i mean and so and in that instance you know a minimum on our prepping is wise i mean so you know where i still live in the northeast we have i couldn't tell you how much food we have but mm -hmm. we could live off the food in our house probably a month without shopping sure and we have a generator you know just some normal things you know what i mean yeah. To get us through, should something happen? Should something go wrong? Yeah. So I think there is a certain amount of wisdom to this. These people, of course, just take it to the nth degree. Yeah, that was kind of the distinction I was making earlier when I right. talked about episode two, where at first I thought Rodney was going to be more like one of those people. Like, oh, mm -hmm. there's this disaster that could happen. I should be prepared in some way. And that makes right. sense to me. But buying a tank so that you can fight off marauders <laughs> <laughs> makes a little bit less Right. I think what it ends up being for a lot of these guys is just, you know, playing army as a 45 oh, yeah, for sure. You know what I mean? You buy the tank because it's fun. You go out and you have your stupid, you know, marauder drills with your friends because yeah. it's fun. You, know, you get some paintball guns and you go out and, hey, I paintball before. I had fun. I've done that in Airsoft too. I had fun doing it. These guys just take it to the next level because, you know, it's like they got the money to turn their ATVs into mobile Airsoft things to have fun with. You know what I mean? Yeah. It definitely seems like it's just fun, you know, for a lot of these guys. Yeah. And then another common theme that I was picking up on with a lot of these people is just mm -hmm. kind of distrust of like outsiders, foreigners, yep. quote unquote, urban looters, which I think is just a euphemism for black people. <laughs> and yeah, so on yeah. and so forth. That seemed to crop up over and over again. Because there's always this... No matter what, once the shit hits the fan, it's going to be complete anarchy. Everybody's going to be killing each other, blah, 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 blah. Right, right. And that gets to like the incoherence of the scenarios. Because, for instance, we just had a big thing in Puerto Rico with a hurricane that knocked out the entire power grid. And it was terrible. Thousands of people died. 
and there's a lot of hardship. I don't want to minimize that. But it's not Mad Max down there. People aren't <laughs> patrolling the streets, shooting people with machine guns and looting people and so on and so forth. Right. And a lot of these people, they're talking about economic collapse due to hyperinflation and the national debt. There's been hyperinflations before, like places like Weimar, Germany or Zimbabwe or Venezuela. Venezuela. Yeah. And there's real economic hardship. Once again, I don't want to minimize that. But people don't stop selling things. <laughs> a lot of these people are like, people are going to stop selling things. Commerce is going to completely come to an end. It's like, no, that's not really how economies work. <laughs> like maybe people stop accepting money for things and you have to like barter or whatnot. But people don't stop selling right. things. People don't stop producing things. <laughs> and then the other I mean ones. Uh-huh. I was going to say, I think you're right to a degree. I think if you look at, for instance, Venezuela as an example, actually a lot of people have stopped producing things because it no longer was economically feasible to because there was fixed prices and it would cost more to produce something than it did to sell it. So let me put it this way. I think a lot of what these people say, there's mm -hmm. a grain of truth. Do you know what I mean? But again, they just take it too far. Sure. Do I think, you know, the examples would ever get as bad as a lot of these people envision? No. Again, is it actually what they're truly envisioning or how much it is you know, embellished or exaggerated for the show? I think there's some of that as well. But I think these people being as deep as they are sort of in this community, they've taken – it's sort of an echo chamber, right? Sure. It's everyone is talking about these potential events and what could happen. And so it's just talked up to being, like you said, unrealistic. But there, I think there's some truth in a lot of what they say. Well, like the Venezuela example, fixed prices. Yeah, it definitely reduces production, but people still produce right. things. They just sell it on, you know, the black market or mm -hmm. they produce like, you know, what they're compelled to produce by the government or whatnot. But they don't just stop. <laughs> like if you go to Venezuela, there's still things there. People don't stop <laughs> producing. Things. Oh, right, right. But I think my example is there has been like a bunch of, I don't want to get into specific, but yeah, but there sure. has been a bunch of things that have just stopped being produced. The good example is Coca-Cola. Yeah. Just well, left. they don't stop producing I mean, basic food, you know. Sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other ones is funny. We made fun of that Red Dawn scenario. <laughs> but that one actually seemed more realistic than the idea that there was going to be an EMP attack or a mega tornado that was or a lightning storm or whatever. If the national power grid got knocked out in the US, somebody would be coming in. <laughs> like there's not going to be a lightning storm that's going to knock out all power everywhere across the entire world. Yeah, that one was ridiculous. Yeah. So, or the cyber attack or the EMP attack, that would be part of, you know, <laughs> a country, you know, coming in. And maybe you could say, like, let's say it's us and the Russians, we exchange cyber attacks and knock each other's power grids. There's going to be some other country that doesn't have their power grid taken out that's going to come in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I mean, all of their scenarios are sort of outlandish. I think the most, I don't know if any of these could actually happen. I think the most realistic in some way are the economic or potential financial system. If there could ever be some sort of, you know, collapse, anything like, I mean, it's not really quite living memory anymore, but I mean, the 1930s was tough with the Great Depression. Yeah. Right? Something like that where things got really tight and really hard. But again, I mean, unless I'm really poorly versed in history, I don't recall there being like marauders just back in the 1930s. Like it no. was tough. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like the Venezuela thing. You you can definitely talk yeah. about how the government's policies have led to an economic collapse and people aren't producing as much as they used to. But people still produce. There aren't like looters on the streets, like murdering people. And so, on. so yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's just ridiculous to me.
And it also gets into like the POV of the show because at the end they'll do their like little coda about how experts have determined that in economic collapse the chances are very low, blah, blah, blah. Yep. I felt like they didn't go far enough with that. Like they needed to break out scientific notation to really accurately depict the odds of some of these things. <laughs> so it felt like the show was egging all of this stuff on and then throwing mm. this fig leaf on at the end. And that also comes into, you know, how they're bringing on this practical preppers company to tell these people how good their preps were. And that whole aspect would have irritated me less if this was on like Spike TV or something like that. But given mm. the fact that this was Nat Geo and it's supposed to be an educational scientific <laughs> channel that's based in empirical fact and they're kind of pandering to this that aspect kind of annoyed me not to the extent where i like despise the show but definitely irritated me a little bit yeah no i follow you and then i guess one last thing i wanted to cover this will both be before the article and maybe also lead us in is talking about the motivation behind this worldview and behind the people portrayed on the show and i think you're very accurate in talking about how it's like playing army or something like that or the thing that came to my mind was actually this show's pretty different in some ways but also kind of similar in some other ways toddlers and tiaras mm. in terms of there's both this very irrational aspect to it where i'm not quite sure what they're getting out of it from like a cost benefit point of view i believe they're getting nothing out of it other than some <laughs> type of psychic satisfaction but also this kind of like rigid formulation of a traditional gender role where in mm -hmm. toddlers and tiaras is this like feminized beauty queen type deal where you're gaining your value from your appearance. Whereas with this one, it was this like stoic, tough as nails, physically, I guess maybe violent doesn't capture at all. Maybe there's another word, but certainly willing to use violence in order yep. to kind of defend what's theirs and defend their family. This kind of traditional conception of what masculinity should be like that definitely seemed to be the motivation behind a lot of these people. And I don't mm -hmm. think it's a coincidence that these people are all pushing middle age. <laughs> this oh, yeah. almost kind of reminded me of like the guy in their 40s that buys a Ferrari and goes down to the local community college to try to <laughs> yeah. pick up women. <laughs> Especially, you know, the financial aspect, because you noted this. These people are all very rich, with a couple yep. exceptions. I right. think the thing I learned the most about this is taxes probably aren't high enough if people have all this money to spend on this stupid shit and that made me really it sounds like you were a lot more sympathetic to these people than i were i really didn't like these people at all which is different from not liking the show i enjoyed the show on some level but i really mm -hmm. didn't like these people and i think it was because they were very financially secure like there's some things like i don't endorse this but like the hurricane katrina conspiracies that the government blew up the levees and flooded I don't endorse that, but I can understand why some people believe that who, you know, are from like a poor community. There's been mm -hmm. like a long history of racism and discrimination. I can understand how that could like work for someone like that on a metaphorical level, like how they can feel the, you know, the quote unquote systems pitted up against them, even though I don't endorse it. There's no evidence that the government blew up the levees. Whereas with these people, yep. they all seem to be fine. They all seem to have tons of money. They all seem to be living a fine life. They all had a bunch more money than I did. I didn't get what their fucking deal was, man. 
<laughs> yeah. No, no, I hear you, man. Again, I think it's a host of things, right? Mm-hmm. I think all these guys have some sort of deep-seated concern, right? That things won't turn out right, right? That they are very mm-hmm. risk-averse. And I got to admit, a part of me, the reason why I like this is because there's this part of me that is like that. Okay. I wouldn't consider myself a prepper. Mm-hmm. I would like if I perhaps had some more food and some more water and some more things, you know, for myself in case something were to happen for myself and my family, right? Mm-hmm. But I think the large part of it is it's that sort of psychology that's mixed with, like you said, too much money. And so it's like, mm-hmm. it begins as I'm going to prep and it's like, you know, well, I want to buy, you know, this 25th gun and how do I, you know, convince mm-hmm. my wife that it's okay I get this 25th gun? It's I tell her, well, we need it for when the marauders come. Sure. <laughs> you know? And it's like, it's this excuse to continue to engage in these pursuits. Why the hell else are you going to build a huge friggin' bus that runs on wood that you smash through cars? Yeah, I guess. You know, there's I no can... reason to. Like, Sure, yeah. Well, I kind of understand what you say about, like, the risk-averse personality being taken too far. But the thing yeah. is, is if you have 25 guns around the house, there's way more of a likelihood that one of those guns is going to accidentally go off and kill somebody than it is going to be defending you against marauders on the apocalypse come. So it's not even like oh, a sure. good calculation of risk. So it's got to be something else. And I think you're right. It's this, like masculine fantasy i mean maybe this gets us into the article and we can maybe discuss about how much we agree with it or not it sounds like i probably agree with it maybe more maybe you will have some critiques oh yeah i do have some critiques but it's going okay. on. Yep. so the article we read for this show it's called the man apocalypse doomsday preppers and the rituals of apocalyptic manhood and it's by casey ryan kelly and it appeared in the june 2016 version of a academic magazine called the text and performance quarterly and the main thesis behind this article is that this show and others like it represent a cultural response to the decline of a term that we've used on the show before and is used in the literature more broadly hegemonic masculinity and that these shows reassert the importance of traditional masculine values as a response to this oncoming imagined apocalypse that's going to be brought on by what he terms as feminized values such as dependence, particularly on government and other large bureaucratic institutions, along with just dependence on modern technology more generally, that it's made us soft and unprepared for the realities to come. In some ways, it's kind of proposing a similar thesis to maybe an article we discussed earlier on Highway Through Hell in terms of the popularity of blue-collar TV, but in a more extreme and apocalyptic fashion that instead of retreating back into this kind of imagined hazy nostalgic feeling of good old-fashioned blue-collar work it's projecting out to the future this vision of apocalypse and that's going to be the resolution to what's seen as a decline of traditional masculine values yep so i think the way i'm going to describe my reaction is i agree in part maybe with the or i agree in whole perhaps with the main thrust of the author's argument but i disagree with some of the basis for that if that makes sense so i understand and i agree with this author that these shows are a way to play out not only the show but just the acts by these persons are a way to play out that callback 
it's for masculine strength, masculine skills. I understand and agree with that argument. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I agree, though, that it's in response to what's a feminization of culture. Okay. And here's why. Just because, right. and this may be just sort of a larger critique as to sort of like critical theory, but I'm not sure everything needs to be like masculine or feminine. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think some things can just be, right? Okay. Like, regardless of gender or genderization or, you know, whatever sort of term you want to use, right? Mm. And so I agree that this can be an act of masculinity, a lot of what we see in this show, but I'm not sure it's done because our culture is feminized. Do you know what I mean? I guess I agree with you that not everything has to have a gender, but I feel like our society assigns everything a gender. And, you know, whether you like it or not, I think the type of prepper does view, you know, like I said, the idea that society is going soft. Mm -hmm. You can say, you know, that shouldn't be associated with femininity, that idea of being soft. But the reality Mm -hmm. is, is that in our modern society, it just is. That's how they view it. You understand what I mean? I understand what you're saying, yep. So I didn't see the articles making a claim that there was some type of inherent relation between femininity and softness, but that he was just describing how this worldview of hegemonic masculinity views the correlation between femininity and softness. Yeah, I mean, and I mean, I think I understand it. I just, again, I don't entirely agree because even, and perhaps we didn't see it as much in the episodes we watched, but even in some of the episodes recounted by this author, mm-hmm. there's talks about how the men are foraging for food, mm-hmm. are teaching their children how to do some of these same things, forage for food. Because we saw some of these guys, you know, having you know gardens. Mm, vegetables sure things that aren't coded i think is strongly masculine right and so i don't know i just think it's perhaps a little i understand the author's argument i just think it perhaps is a little more complicated than potentially the argument puts forth and i'm not sure i buy into sure. the argument that it is because of a feminization of society so much that it is a sense of loss of power i agree that it's a loss of power uh-huh. there's loss of power that white men are sensing sure in our society, right? But I think that has less to do with feminization than it does has to do with globalization and sort of the changing economy of the Western world in the last you know, two generations. And maybe there is some way we can assign that to sort of, again, a gender. But to me, my argument being that it's globalization and other powers of that, I don't see that as a gender thing. I just see it as it has in some ways because of how it has affected, for instance, the economy in the Western world. It, it seems to have affected men more than women in the US. But I don't think that makes it a feminine thing do you know what i mean i just think it's yeah sure i guess to a certain extent i feel like Mm -hmm. that would have more validity if these were people on trailer parks who are really struggling that were depicted in this show but these people all seem to be doing pretty well in the new globalized economy they could afford to buy cars and machine gun them and blow them up and they have acres of land and spending you know thousands of dollars hiring contractors to build these compounds so i don't i'd be more sympathetic with the people on the show if there was some type of economic explanation but it doesn't seem to be that at all and maybe there are other types of doomsday preppers who aren't profiled on this show where that is more of a valid explanation but to me it just very much seemed to be all about gender and feeling like there's this loss of esteem for traditional masculine values and that society was like you know getting soft and dependent on technology and too reliant on like others basically the only person you can rely on is yourself that seemed to be the main thrust of the worldview Mm -hmm. and that's Mm -hmm. like a worldview that i very much 
So there was that aspect. You can only rely on yourself. And the most important thing right. is to protect your family. The idea of the father is both the authority and the protector. And I thought that was an interesting part of the article. That section on prepping is an expression of fatherly concern and authority in the face of anxieties about the role of the traditional family. And how in a mm-hmm. lot of these, I think in the first episode, it was Chad. If you remember, his wife said something about like how she maybe thought the prepping was going a bit too far but like i think they were a christian family so she was like well he's the one bestowed with the authority or whatnot that seemed to be kind of a common theme of wives deferring to the one thing that came up over and over again is like oh he really wants to help us he really wants to defend the family and i'm glad he's thinking of all these preps that are gonna keep us safe after the apocalypse comes or whatever seemed to be something that came up a lot yeah 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 no, I agree with you, Mike, that it's, I think the strongest coded thing, or not even coded, I guess just the strongest message, I think, is portrayed through all of these persons, right, is that they see self-reliance as this really goal, this ideal, right, that mm-hmm. you shouldn't be relying so much on others. And I guess, potentially, I just see this differently, right or wrong, sure. is that I don't see that as a gendered thing. And maybe it is. And maybe it is in society at large, and it's just my point of view, you know, how I see it, as I don't see self-reliance as a gendered thing. And maybe that has to do just who I am. And in a way, you know, the woman I ended up marrying that I see self-reliance as a genderless thing, if that makes sense. So maybe that's where some of my difficulty in fully buying into all of the author's argument is. And again, maybe I'm just wrong there. And it is a gender thing in our society. Well, I think it relates to that traditional conception of the man goes out and is the breadwinner Mm -hmm. and the woman stays at home. I think Mm -hmm. that's where that gendered aspect of self-reliance comes from. Because it's this idea that you can't truly be self-reliant if you're not earning some type of income or doing some type of work and the Mm -hmm. you know women's work of child rearing has historically been devalued whereas Mm -hmm. the you know earning money has been the thing that's been valorized talked about it a lot with the highway through hell episode and Mm -hmm. so talking about like dependency versus self-reliance and how that's gendered you think of like the breadwinner father and then you think of someone who's like a symbol of dependency like the welfare mother or the single mother and how there's something supposedly pathological and that's a sign that like our society is broken down and that we've kind of lost our way and lost our values Mm-hmm. So I do think that there, I understand what you're saying, that maybe you don't think of it that way personally. But I think when you're right, looking right. at how society and aggregate thinks about these types of things, I do think that there is a gender distinction between, quote unquote, self-reliance and, quote unquote, dependency. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I guess maybe that's why I had this, to get kind of into the weeds of the article, though, uh-huh. why I had this difficulty accepting this further argument put forward about sort of hysteria in women. And uh-huh. it's sort of a sub-argument in this paper, though, and talking yeah. about how prepping is transgressive for women. And frankly, I mean, we didn't see, none of the episodes I watched, I don't think any did either, had like yeah. a female main character. But apparently some in the earlier seasons do. Yeah. And how they are portrayed is differently. And this goes right back to what I just said and kind of what you responded to. But uh-huh. I had difficulty sort of accepting an argument because, again, maybe she's because personally, I don't see it as in any way transgressive as to you know what a woman should be doing. And frankly, I mean, I saw in a lot of these, and you're right, in some of it was sort of the women being dragged along. Mm. But in some of them, they were right there with them. Sure. I mean, I'm thinking of the guy in Florida. Yeah. I didn't see anything transgressive about what his wife or his mother were doing, right? Because his mother lived with them, yeah. them and was like bringing out the chicken for them to cook in his little sunlight laser cooker. Yeah. And then, granted, while his daughter wasn't too interested, the gentleman in Alaska, his wife was involved going mm. to range with them. I mean, there's 
abused. And I didn't think the show portrayed that behavior as transgressive for any of those women. Granted, again, they weren't the primary ones doing sure. it, but they were fully involved while others were certainly lesser involved. Yeah. So I'm just not sure I bought that argument. Yeah, I thought that was one of the weaker sections of the article, but at the same time, I didn't see mm-hmm. those particular episodes, which sure, is kind of sure. unfortunate because I think they would have been interesting. All the ones yep. we watched for this season were just, you know, your more typical archetype, your middle-aged white guy. So it was hard for me. I agree with you that I found that the least compelling part, the least compelling argument. But at the same time, not having seen those episodes, it's hard for me to fully evaluate the argument. Yep. And then I thought the other interesting thing about the article speaking to the authenticity is there's some citations and this kind of throws back to what you were talking about earlier, talking about Mm -hmm. the level of producer coaching in terms of what's going on on screen. He cites one instant where the crew offered to bring along an iguana and have the person hunt it on camera (laughs) or how the producers asked someone to take a machine gun out to the range just to get the footage of him using it. And I did Mm -hmm. follow there's links to the articles and they're still available online. I'll link them up in the show notes. So yeah, that definitely throws into question. So I definitely think this is authentic in terms of I think these people genuinely, it's amped up, it's played up, but broad strokes, I think this is what these people believe. But at the same time, like the guy that shot up the car with his Brownie machine gun, the producers probably didn't have to do a lot of coaxing, but I'm pretty sure that they maybe even offered to buy the car for him to shoot up on the range. <laughs> Who knows? Mm-hmm. I'm sure the guy was enthusiastic to do it. But yeah, there's definitely... And maybe I'm not being critical enough of the show. I said I kind of enjoyed it. But the thing that kind of ground me down with this show, not to the point where I hated it, but where I kind of got exhausted with it, was this constant mm-hmm. like, we have to kill the marauders, blah, 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 blah. And maybe that aspect was pushed by the producers more than maybe I give credit for. And maybe that yeah, sours no. me a little bit. I thought that it was weird how so many of them were focused on the Marauder thing. But I think that my impression is that just feeds into because it's like, you know, play up army for grown-ups. Sure. I thought that was much less realistic mm. than the idea of, yeah, we should have some food and water saved up. Like, not a yeah. bad idea because there could be any sort of natural disaster that randomly happens that it's good to have food and water saved up. Sure. The other aspect of it was strange. And as to the authenticity... I think I've touched upon this pretty well, but I thought mm. all of these people, or of course legitimately preppers, that were pushed, goaded, suggested, sure. you know, by the producers to certainly let their freak fly, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. And they did. And I didn't think all of their sort of confessionals to the camera were all that authentic nor, you know, their stated fears. And I don't know how much this stuff actually would have, like the guy building the bus. Would he build the bus if it hadn't been on a show? Maybe, yeah, but knows. I don't know. It just, again, I mean, I'm trying to read tea leaves here. Mm. Just some of the performative aspects of it, of the things, the big tasks they were doing, seems like it may have been just put on for the camera. Sure. Like you said, like shooting up the car. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if the projects themselves were, but like some of the drilling and stuff like that is pretty clear. I mean, I could believe that they do do drills like this, but I think those were instances where it's clear as like, all right, the camera crew's here. Let's do our bucket drill. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else covered in the article that you wanted to touch on? No, that's about it. Okay, so maybe segueing into the appeal, my opinion about the appeal of this show is the people are watching it unironically. I think the article basically nailed it in terms of the appeal. Mm -hmm. For me, the enjoyment came from just watching 
I guess it's somewhat similar. I keep comparing the show to Toddlers and Tiaras, but I guess that was in some ways the most similar show to me. And that the ridiculousness of the people was interesting and entertaining on some level. But it was also like after a while somewhat depressing, like the worldview. <laughs> and it kind of wore me down a little bit. Mm. Sounds like you liked the show a lot more than me. And I know you infamously hated Toddlers and Tiaras. So to you, what was the yeah. appeal of this show? It's twofold for me. Okay. Because... I enjoy the show both as sort of an interest in some of the prepping things they do. Mm -hmm. In particular, like I told you, I mean, I thought the first episode was very interesting because I thought it fascinating, sort of the aquaponic system that guy set sure. up. And like, I finished that episode, like, and turned my wife and said, man, you would actually really like this episode. Like, it'd be cool someday if we could set up something like that. Like, I think it'd be uh -huh. really cool to have like this thing where I have fish that are getting fed by, mm -hmm. you know, some of the plants and the plants are trying to help clear some of the water. And get... I just thought that was really cool. Sure. And, you know, some of the other prep stuff I thought was interesting too. I thought it's crazy it was the guy in Florida with those little magnifying cooker thing. Kind of yeah. cool to watch him build. And though the bus was stupid, the guy, I mean, he, at least as presented in the television show, he made this like wood fired engine to run a mm -hmm. bus. I mean, that's kind of cool. So I liked a lot of the aspects of the prepping. Sure. So I can get just like a base, you know, without really looking at it intelligently or critiquing it, I can enjoy it. Mm -hmm. But then I also enjoy it going like, oh, these people are kind of crazy. Like, sure. I mean, I'm at once both like genuinely enjoying it, but also at the same time, critically and humorously enjoying it because sure. I think I, while I'm interested in this to some degree, I'm nowhere near to the degree these people are. And so I think they're a little crazy and some of the stuff they're doing is outrageous, like waterboarding themselves or like having sure. drills where they, you know, kill the marauders in trucks. Like, I mean, it's just, I was laughing and enjoying that on a different level. So sure. frankly, yeah, I mean, I liked it. I had no issues kind of watching these episodes. Mm -hmm. And do you think that you're the typical viewer of this show or do you think there's a different typical viewer that's getting something different out of it? I would guess that the typical viewer is a little less critical than I am. Sure. Just one, I'm purposely being a little more critical. I mean, really just because of the podcast. Yeah. I would, like I said, I occasionally seen, I'm not sure it was this show because there was a couple like this. Yeah. I've occasionally seen them on television and sort of just, you know, enjoyed it a bit and laughed mm -hmm. fun a little bit. But I got to think I'm probably a little more critical than probably the, the normal audience because I'm not going to tune in again sure. to this show. I'm not going to seek it out. Yeah. Do you think a lot of the people who watch the show are like... You think less of a freak show aspect, the more like they're actually into, maybe not as deep as these people, but into the prepping thing? Yeah. You think people watch it for that? That's my guess. Yeah, okay. what do you think? Yeah, I'm not sure. I know the viewership's mostly male and older, so that definitely is evidence for the being more sympathetic to the protagonist thing. For me, I enjoyed the freak show aspect of it. I think maybe mm -hmm. the reason I enjoyed it a little bit less than you. And I think this also maybe gets back to like some other shows that you probably like more than me. Not that I necessarily hated that show, but like Dual Survival, where I guess it's kind of cool to see like, you know, the living off the grid, etc, etc. But to yep. me, it just seems like a lot of fucking work for not much benefit. <laughs> um, you know, if the apocalypse comes, I'm happy to just die. I don't care. I don't want to, like, <laughs> fight off marauders with machine guns and shit in the latrine and eat honey that's, you know, <laughs> 10 years old or cook chicken with a solar magnifying glass and barter for <laughs> zinc or whatever that these people seem to want to do. Like, if the shit hits the fan... I am just gonna be perfectly happy to <laughs> be done with everything. <laughs> There's not much point going on. <laughs>
And like, honestly, for all the elaborate stuff, you know, them stockpiling their stuff and making all these gadgets, the reality is once their stockpiles go down, I wouldn't give these people much more than a year if civilization actually did collapse. Because sooner or later, you're going to have a shitty winter or something like that. Your food's not going to grow and then you're just going to be fucked. Especially if you're not connecting with other people and you're just hunkering down in your own bunker or whatever. Yeah, could be the case, yeah. But yeah, anything else? Any final thoughts about the show? I think that covers it. Okay, so what do you have prepared for next time, JS? I hope you are excited because I have never seen it, but okay. I have heard some fantastic things. All right. I think you will enjoy this. Okay. We are going to watch season one of Flavor of Love. <laughs> Flavor okay. Flav. All right. <laughs> To me, this like, again, I have not seen it, but I know of the show and I, of course, know who Flavor Flav sure, is. Yeah. To me, this is like quintessential reality show. Yeah, this is an all-time classic. Right. Have you seen this before? I've seen bits and pieces of it, but I've never okay. actually sat down and watched okay. an episode. I've seen like gifs of it and that's it. Like, sure, I don't think yeah. I've ever actually seen things. So this will be new to me, but I'm sure it will be fun. Okay. So season one is on Hulu. Season two is as well. But I thought we should start with the original and get a sense of yeah. Flavor Flav in Flavor of Love season one. Okay. Sounds good. Guess I'll just take us out with the usual announcements then. Sounds good. Want to get in touch with us? You can email us at 42 minutes of reality at gmail.com. Want to check out our website with extended show notes and links? You can check that out at 42minofreality.wordpress.com. And if you'd like to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcast or Stitcher or whatever podcasting app that you're using, definitely help us out to help more people get a chance to listen to the show. So we will be back again next month with Flavor of Love. Thanks. See you then. Do y'all know what the number one cause of death is in the last hundred years? Answer. Nope. The biggest killer of humans for the last hundred years, thing called democide or genocide, very similar things.